0: The views in this do not necessarily reflect the views of WKNC, Student Media, or NCSU. You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1. Good morning, Raleigh, and welcome to this week's Eye on the Triangle on WKNC FM Raleigh. It's March 18th, the time is 11.14, and on behalf of the team here at WKNC, I'd like to thank you for tuning in. I'm Mirtha Donna Stork, bringing you Eye on the Triangle for this delightfully sunny Friday morning. For, de- for today's show, we'll bring you a look at the events in the week ahead with the Community Calendar by Peter Svezeni. As always, Nick Weaver brings you the Modest Mouth Review. This week, he reviews Dying is Fun, the debut album of Everyone is Dirty. And we know, we know your airwaves have been inundated with political talk for the past few months, but, but, we are going to take a different twist and look at where politics and music intersect for your weekly dose of pop culture. Jamie Halla is going to bring you his segment, KNC Goes TMZ. He'll be talking about the use of music in political campaigns. On this week's Explain It To Me Like I'm 88. Cameron Dolachek sits down with graduate student in computer science Beiruz Mustafavi to discuss the merits of online tutoring and education. But first, Kevin Kronk gives us a look at the news around North Carolina.
1: I'm Kevin Kronk and this is the North Carolina News Service. Flint, Michigan is hundreds of miles away from North Carolina, but images of brown water coming from kitchen taps and tales of illness in children and adults are prompting talk about water quality in this state. Fortunately, high-quality water is in plentiful supply in North Carolina, particularly in areas west where land conservation groups have protected 31,000 acres in the last five years and the water that flows on the land and through it. According to Jessica Lagas, with Blue Ridge Forever.
0: One of the major goals of land conservation is protecting clean water for everyone. As we've seen in Flint, when you don't have clean drinking water, it's completely disruptive to life. It's one of our basic needs as humans.
1: Lagas says one inch of rain equates to a gallon of water per square foot of land. Considering that, Blue Ridge Forever estimates that land trusts in western North Carolina protect approximately 53 billion gallons of clean water a year. Because land trusts offer protection from development for perpetuity, that benefit is seen every year by the thousands of people who drink and use the water for daily living. Lagus says the protected land and consequent water protection impact people from the Atlantic to the Gulf Coast.
0: Being at the top of these mountains, we are such a major headwaters because we're on the continental divide, the waterfalls both ways. We're not only protecting the water here for local North Carolinians, but that's feeding out exponentially downstream.
1: Over the last five years, the Tin Land Trust in western North Carolina have completed more than 280 land conservation projects. According to the EPA's most recent data in 2014, less than 1% of the state's water supply is designated as impaired. The push by North Carolina consumers to know whether their food is genetically modified is gaining momentum, but not as fast as legislation before Congress that would essentially block any mandatory labeling of food that contains genetically modified ingredients. Last week, the U.S. Senate Agriculture Committee approved its version of what opponents call the DARK Act, which stands for Denying Americans the Right to Know. Roland McReynolds with the Carolina Farm Stewardship Association says the legislation runs counter to the current trend of consumer education about what's in the food we eat and where it comes from.
2: People want to know what's in their food, and this kind of legislation that would prohibit states from
3: requiring this kind of labeling really just is going to end up leaving consumers more in the dark about what's in their food.
1: North Carolina lawmakers considered mandatory labeling of GMO foods in 2011, but the measure did not pass. The legislation introduced by Senate Agriculture Committee Chairman Pat Roberts also would call for the USDA to promote the benefits of agricultural biotechnology. Those in favor of the measure say mandatory food labeling would be expensive for both businesses and consumers. McReynolds says the argument that GMO labeling would create a cost to the industry that would ultimately be passed to consumers is without merit.
3: If you think about how often companies change the labels that they use to market processed foods, you realize that the idea of requiring an additional label driving up food costs is really just not based in reality.
1: Several food and farm policy groups are pledging to fight the Dark Act. While there's much talk among candidates and pundits about pursuing the black, Latino, and female vote in North Carolina's primary today, there's little discussion about the Asian American population. New data from the Institute for Southern Studies indicates it's a demographic that candidates should pay attention to. According to the new research, Asian Americans increased by 85% between 2000 and 2010, making them the fastest-growing racial ethnic group within the state. Kat Lee with the Southeast Asian Coalition says campaigns and other organizations should remember to include the population in their get-out-the-vote efforts.
0: Asian American voters are contacted a lot less than other populations when it comes to encouraging people to come out to the polls. And we know that in the South, that percentage is even higher.
1: It's at 80%. According to the report, Asian Americans have relatively high citizenship rates, standing at about 70%. At the same time, just over half actually are registered to vote, compared with a rate of 70% of all eligible voters in the state. With potentially 100,000 or more votes at stake, the report indicates Asian American voters could impact the election outcome in the state. The 2012 presidential election was decided by less than 100,000 votes. Lee says she and other members of her community want candidates to address issues surrounding education and language barrier issues, in addition to immigration.
0: What I see every day is issues of immigration are super important. Our communities, especially uh, refugee communities, are often waiting to be reunited with families, and there's a pretty long backlog in terms of petitioning for family members.
1: Ali Yi is with the Institute for Southern Studies and says the growing Asian American community should no longer be overlooked by candidates in this primary or the upcoming November election.
4: This is a community that we
0: need to focus on, and we need to reach out to them to engage them to have a greater voice, to have a fuller voice in North Carolina's primaries and going into November and general election.
1: Nationwide, according to the report, North Carolina has the third-fastest-growing Asian American population, with Nevada and Arizona leading the list, respectively. This has been a North Carolina News Service. I'm Kevin Kronk, and this is Eye on the Triangle.
0: This is WKNC-FM Raleigh, and you are listening to Eye on the Triangle. Up next is a look at the international news with Saif
5: Hassan. And this is your News Beyond the Headlines. Norwegian mass murderer Anders Breivik has told a courtroom that the state has tried to kill him with five years of solitary confinement. The right-wing extremist is suing the government complaining that his jail conditions break human rights law. The state denies this. He told the court it would have been more humane to shoot him than treat him like an animal for the past five years. Breivik murdered 77 people in twin attacks in Oslo in July 2011. He carried out a bombing in central Oslo before driving off to the island of Utoya, where he opened fire on children at a Labour Party youth camp. Breivik, 37, told the judge in a converted gym at Skien Prison on Wednesday that he would fight for Nazism till the day he died. However, he made no attempt to repeat the Nazi salute he had given on the first day of the hearing, after the judge urged him not to do so anymore. He praised the rise of the far-right in Greece and the right-wing parties of Germany and said he drew strength from Adolf Hitler— while asserting that he no longer believed in violent revolution. Although the first day of the hearing was broadcast live on Norwegian TV, the cameras were switched off when Breivik began his lengthy, scripted address. During his testimony, which he read out unchallenged, Breivik complained of 885 strip searches, including five since he was transferred to Skien three years ago. He went on to suggest that the food he had been given was worse than waterboarding. For the past five years, the state has tried to kill me, he said. I don't think many people would have survived as long as I have. Breivik complained of being completely gagged by the authorities and of developing isolation headache, which had affected his health and concentration. Breivik accuses the Norwegian government of breaching two clauses of the European Convention on Human Rights. One of the clauses guarantees the right to respect for private and family life and correspondence, while the other prohibits inhumane or degrading treatment or punishment. Bravik, serving a 21-year sentence, is the only prisoner in the high-security wing of Skien Prison, about 60 miles southwest of the capital, Oslo. Authorities say his correspondence is censored to stop him from setting up an extremist network. Among his demands in court on Wednesday were access to five friends or supporters, incoming mail, and the right to publish two books. Bravik's visits are almost all with professionals across a glass partition— According to his lawyer, Bravik's mother was the only person allowed to visit him without being separated by the glass screen. She died in 2013. The Attorney General's office has insisted that prison conditions are well within the limits of what is permitted under the convention. Last September, Bravik threatened to starve himself to death in protest at his treatment in prison. His cell at Skien Prison has a TV and computer, but he has no access to the internet. Breivik was first held at ILA Detention and Security Prison Center near Oslo before being moved to Skien in 2013. At ILA, he also complained of being held in inhumane conditions. Moving to Paris, four people have been arrested on suspicion of planning a terror attack. Three men and a woman were detained at dawn in Paris in the nearby northern suburb of Saint-Saint-Denis, according to French media. French security forces had files on all four for having ties to radical Islam. The French capital remains on high alert after the jihadist attacks in November, which killed 130 people. More than 100 people were wounded in a series of shootings and suicide bombings that had targeted a concert hall, a major stadium, restaurants, and bars all over the course of a Friday evening. France's intelligence agency told French media that the four detained on Wednesday had been planning an attack in the heart of Paris in the near future. At least one of those arrested is reported to have had a prior conviction and had been under house arrest since last month under new rules imposed after the attacks from November. The arrests come a day after French police officers alongside Belgian officers were involved in a raid on a house in Brussels that ended in a shootout with at least two suspects. One of the suspects was killed and later identified as Algerian national Mohamed Belkaid. His body was found alongside ultra-conservative Islamic literature and ammunition, prosecutors said. I'm Saif Hassan, and this has been your News Beyond the Headlines.
6: Hello, my name is Cameron Dolachek, and welcome to another segment of Explain It to Me Like I'm 88, where I interview PhD students from around NC State and have them explain their research in a way that people who are unfamiliar with the field will understand. Today I have Behrouz Mastafavi, and he's going to explain his research on education and using online tutoring systems to better teach
2: students. My name is Behrouz Mastafavi. I am a PhD student in computer science at North Carolina State University.
6: Unlike all of the other interviews I've conducted, I've actually been able to work with Behrouz for a couple of years doing undergrad research and developing the tutoring system that he's going to talk about later. So with that being said, uh, let's dive right into this interview. Beiruz, what first led you to you know, want to study what you're studying?
2: Well, when I was an undergrad, I was what you would call a bad student. Um, I loved learning, I loved knowing things, I loved uh, the process of exploring a new topic and understanding the nuts and bolts of how everything worked. But I was very bad at the procedure that most students have to go through in a classroom. The way that the normal classroom experience was presented did not really work for me. I was bad at doing my assignments, I was bad at focusing. And the traditional go to class, do homework, take tests um didn't really help me learn at all, and I was not a very successful student as as a result of that, so it was a real struggle for me to get through my undergraduate career and it took me about twice as long as it took uh, as it takes most people by the time I got to grad school, I was tired, and I was worried about how I was, how I was going to succeed and At that time, I had the opportunity to work with my current advisor, Dr. Tiffany Barnes, who uh, who focused on alternative forms of education um, and this really caught my attention um, because what she was doing was being able to take things like games very specifically as a way of helping people who had trouble learning or performing in a normal traditional classroom setting um, and still allowing them to learn the material they needed and succeed.
6: So Beers, how did that struggle in undergraduate education and then you know meeting meeting Dr. Barnes and learning what she does how did that equal you know wanting to go into the research you're doing now
2: so when i got the chance to work with Tiffany Barnes and uh saw the ways that she was approaching education it really inspired me because um where i had these problems getting through school um i felt that if i had had some of those Uh, different ways of learning uh, given to me or if I had those different ways of learning presented to me or if I had um, instructors or some sort of program that understood the way that I needed to learn, I could have gotten through that a lot easier. Um, And it's something that I wanted to be able to, to do myself, to be able to take the experiences that I had and use it to help other people who may have the same sort of problems learning, be able to get through that whole process a lot easier than I did.
6: In its most basic form, what is your research? Uh,
2: basically, um, is to be able to take learning and spread it out to many as many people as possible. Um, right now, what we have in this country, and worldwide actually, is this problem where we have more students who are wanting more people who are wanting to learn and more people who are wanting to, you know, go into a formal education system and not as many instructors who can uh, help those students one-on-one. Um, the learning experience is easiest whenever uh, students have the chance to be able to work with another human being who can understand how it is that they learn and help present the material and guide them through the process. Um, in a way that helps them individually. Um, and with more and more students coming in and less and less teachers to be able to do that, uh, we have the problem of students coming, you know, coming on, coming across those roadblocks that we were talking about without having a another individual or some system to be able to, you know, see where it is that they were having problems and give them an individualized, you know, guidance, formative feedback.
6: Now, can you kind of explain the tutoring system that you use for your research? So
2: Deep Thought is essentially a proof problem solver. Um, Students are given a problem and they uh, use the graphical user interface to be able to solve these problems. And um, as they're solving these problems, we record all of their solutions Um, because logic is a complex problem solving space. Um, Students can give any number of solutions for a single problem. Um, And this gives us a lot of data on how students behave, not just in uh, interacting with the tutor itself, but also when it comes to this particular domain in solving logic, uh, the different ways that students can approach a different problem. And with all of that data, what we can then do is uh, basically create a giant map of student solutions.
6: And how do you leverage these maps of student answers to help the students? Well, let
2: me just say that part of this giant map that we have is not just how students work through the the system, but it's important to map the solutions of students who are successful in completing either a problem or the entire tutor. So when we have a new student who comes into the system, uh, we can map their behavior to... Uh, somebody else who had already been through the system, find the best fit and find the best fit for a student who was not only going through the system but before, but who had a successful path through that system. And if we can match a new student coming in with somebody else who had previously been successful in the system, then we have a basis to guide that new student through the system. If they come across some sort of issue or some sort of problem or they're working in a direction that is not necessarily ideal, um, given their particular mode of behavior.
6: All right, say I'm working through the tutor and I get matched to a previous student. How is that going to help me as I work through the tutor?
2: So that helps you because um, if you are displaying problem-solving behaviors similar to a previous student, um, you are displaying... uh, a cognitive process that matches somebody else who had already been able to go through and successfully complete that tutor. If your cognitive process uh, comes across some sort of barrier or some sort of um, uh, issue with learning a particular concept, because we can match you to somebody else who thinks the way that you do, we can show you essentially how they worked through the system. Basically giving you some sort of formative feedback in either the form of a hint or in the form of uh, a problem that allow you to practice that uh, particular concept that you're trying to learn. But do it in a, in a way that matches your learning style, which we know the more people who are like you who went through the system also work that same problem.
6: To this system, is a student just a bunch of numbers? You know, where is the human connection with this?
2: ultimately what we found is that while we can match somebody working through the system with somebody else who is successful in the system, um, and allow them to get through the tutor that doesn't necessarily match up with that student actually understanding the material the way that they need to understand the material. Um, part of that comes down to why is it that student wants to learn this in the first place? Why are they going through this program? Why are they learning this particular topic? And, um, one of the benefits of working through with this individually is that I get the chance to work with these students and I get to understand how it is that they learn. So as opposed to looking at this from a completely machine learning point of view where a machine can understand a student's behavior and then just match them, when we work with students individually and we understand why it is that they're trying to learn this material, we can better tailor how we develop these systems Um To help students learn in the maximum way possible that will benefit them and not just allow them to get through our system.
6: And that's that's probably especially true in university where, you know, people are coming from everywhere. Or yeah, one of the good things about collecting
2: data from students working through a university class is that these students come from uh, all different modes of instruction. They come from classrooms all over the country and all over the world where they may have been taught. Uh, not necessarily this specific subject matter, but how to learn in many different ways. And the more students that we have coming from a wide variety of different uh, learning styles, the better that we can match any new student who comes in with somebody who thinks like them and who learns like them.
6: What is the end goal of this research and this tutoring system?
2: We want to be able to allow anybody from any place to be able to learn Uh, this sort of material, um, as well as anybody who could come into, you know, a school system and learn. Um, One of the uh, big issues that we have, however, is being able to get these systems out to as many people as possible, because it's one thing to be able to, you know, develop these systems and say, no, hey, it works. We can give this to anybody and anybody can learn this material. And it's another thing for those people to actually have access to these tools in the first place.
6: And I imagine that's that's especially hard with like public schools. Yeah, public schools um,
2: tend to be wary about any sort of system that uh, is just suggested to them. There's a lot of um, there are a lot of barriers that have to deal with uh, the amount of money that these that these schools have to be able to uh, get this sort of software or the uh, time and training necessary. Uh, for the teachers that are going to be using the software in their classrooms to be able to understand how to use it and uh, where to apply it. Um, and a lot of that is not really an issue for uh, academic researchers. This is an issue for um, the money people, the Department of Education on the, the local, state, and federal levels, the amount of money that they get to be able to support these systems and uh, the the basically the standards and regulations that... Um, school systems have.
6: Well, thank you, Beru's, for coming in and explaining your research on education and really kind of showing where the the state of education is right now and um, where it's headed. So, thanks a lot. Uh, thank you very much for having me. My name is Cameron Dolacek, and thank you for listening.
4: This is KNC goes TMZ, and this week I'll be discussing the role of music in the political campaign trail. Music and politics don't always go hand in hand. Sometimes there's a great harmonious relationship like that of Killer Mike and Bernie Sanders having a discussion on politics together, or that one time when Vampire Weekend performed with Bernie Sanders at a rally. Other times, not so much. If you go back all the way to 1984, Ronald Reagan tried to use Bruce Springsteen's classic hit Born in the USA at a rally. The boss, a big Democrat, did not approve of this and made sure Reagan didn't play it again at his rallies. Reagan isn't the only Republican candidate to try and use the Springsteen's blue-collar American songs, Chris Christie tried and it didn't work out so well for him. More recently, Ted Cruz attempted to use an Explosions in the Sky song for a campaign ad. The band was rather displeased with his decision and made sure the video was taken down immediately, which was done quite quickly as Ted Cruz didn't get permission to use the song at all. It isn't always Republican candidates that meet the dismay of musicians. Obama met a cease and desist from soul duo Sam & Dave in the 2008 campaign cycle for playing their song Hold On I'm Coming. However, it seems to be far and in between for a Democrat to face the disdain of an artist for using their music. The list for musicians who are opposed to Republicans using their music is far too expansive and long to list, but there have been some that supported and allowed their music to play such as Kid Rock, Brooks and Dunn, and Brantley Gilbert. So how exactly does all this work you might be wondering? Well, there are a few crucial elements to a politician picking their music out for campaigns and ads. For campaigns, things are a little interesting. As long as the venue for which the politician is campaigning at has a blanket license with the ASCAP and BMI, two copyright agencies, then the politicians can effectively play whatever they want. If a venue doesn't have a license with these organizations, a politician can very easily face the wrath of a disgruntled musician and could face a cease and desist, if not a lawsuit. However, an artist can still sue a politician for using their music in a venue with licenses on the basis of trademark. If a band can successfully argue that the politician, by using their music, is negatively affecting their trademark, then the politician would have to stop using their music. Rapper Kanan invoked the trademark law in 2009 when presidential candidate Mitt Romney used his song Wavin' Flag in rallies. Romney backed down and stopped using the song before it was taken to court. Some experts believe that this law wouldn't have much stature in court but that politicians would be wasting their time to even go to court as a negative publicity would be quite disastrous. When it comes to ad campaigns, things are a little bit more simple. The politician has to have express consent from the artist or record labels and pay royalties to the artist-slash-songwriters if they use their song in an ad. If this doesn't happen, the politicians can be in some deep trouble. This is what happened with Explosion in the Sky and Ted Cruz. Cruz didn't get any consent from the band at all and the band did not want their music to be associated at all with Cruz so they had it taken down. Music is definitely an interesting facet of politics that can sometimes get overlooked, but it can also be a big part in helping out politicians. Just look at how Bernie Sanders has been getting endorsed by many high-level musicians, or Obama in 2008 utilizing uplifting soul songs from the 1960s and 70s to great effects. One thing music definitely creates within politics is the idea of protest. Many great punk and hip-hop songs have been written for the sole purpose of protesting the government. Over the weekend, Donald Trump was going to hold a rally in Chicago, but it was shut down due to protesters and violence breaking out. Once the rally was canceled, many protesters held an impromptu performance of Kendrick Lamar's song, All Right, repeating the chorus of We Gonna Be All Right. Whatever the case is, pop culture has a role in everything, and I'll be there to cover it. This has been Jimmy Hollow with the Triangle, and thank you.
5: Uh, and when I wake up, I recognize you looking at me for the paint cut. But i be looking at you from the face down. One make 11 even eat boom with the face down. Skimming, and let me tell you about my life. Painkillers only put me in a twilight. What pretty pigeon is the highlight. And I tell my mama, I love her. with this
3: Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Weaver of Eye on the Triangle, and you are listening to the Modest Mouth Review. How's it going, y'all? I'm writing this on a beautiful 60 degree weather Monday. The birds are chirping, the sun is shining, and spring brings with it a vibe of fresh purity, a renewed essence of life. Which is why I can think of no better time than to review today's album, Dying is Fun by Everyone is Dirty. Now, I'll just jump right into it and ask the question, who are Everyone is Dirty? Oh, boy, that name sure does not lend itself to grammatically correct sentences. Anywho, I went and had a look around, and all I could turn up was a short bio from their incredibly unutilitarian website. Seriously, every single band website that I've been to that wasn't hosted off a blog is the epitome of aesthetic over functionality. Yes, your graphics and animation look cool. No, I could not get anything to load in under a minute. Fire your designer. As for the bio, Everyone Is Dirty apparently are a rock outfit from Oakland, God knows what state, formed in 2013. This would appear to be their debut album that I'm reviewing. The band is led by frontwoman lead singer and violinist Sivan Lioncub, who apparently sings and plays the violin while dancing across the stage. Now, first of all, I gotta say something about her name. I feel like simply acknowledging it is not enough. I have nothing to add to it, though, so I'm simply going to read it again three times in hopes of summoning a hipster version of an infant Land animal. Sivan, lion cub. Sivan, lion cub. Sivan, lion cub. Wow. Now, second of all, I gotta say, that sounds like an amazing stage show. I've never seen a not-hyped violinist before. Even in the back of the symphony, those guys are always jerking their heads around like in The Exorcism. Can you imagine what it must look like to be doing that and singing at the same time? Because I can't. I sincerely want to go to one of their concerts and find out. Anyways, enough friendly ribbing and onto the actual album itself. In a word, the band's sound can be described as pretty typical garage rock with a touch of punk and indie. I don't really get the psych-rock vibe they seem to think they have, but genres are hard, so I'm not about to make a big fuss about it. Heck, every time I say the word indie in a review, I shiver a little bit. I have no idea what the word means anymore, but people find it descriptive for whatever reason so I guess I'll keep using it. The album definitely goes pretty hard on the rock aspect. Well, maybe not pretty hard, but they're definitely some form of rock. The guitars on this album are the noisy, distortion-laden instruments of angst they were always meant to be. I'd say the band favors a medium distortion level with some other effects added on that keep the sound just slightly dirty and slightly clean. A good even mix, so to speak. The vocals are near whispers, but with a certain intensity that makes you feel like you're being shouted at. Sivan definitely sounds like a Kim Deal type. Actually, this whole album could honestly just be a more garage rock-esque version of a Breeders album. For those of you at home that have no idea what I just said, don't worry about it, just look up the song Cannonball when you get the chance. Or don't, I'm not your dad. At any rate, even the background vocals have a certain intense, jaded quality to them, with a light layer of distortion applied. The recording quality of the songs is pretty top-rate, everything is clean so there's no peaking, not even intentionally so. This album is very much not a lo-fi album, and honestly, it's a refreshing change of pace. That's basically the majority of what I've been listening to lately, and it's been a while since I've heard a relatively clean rock album, and a decent one at that. All of the songs on Dying Is Fun are mixed excellently, and you never get the feeling that something is imbalanced or inaudible. Lastly, the most attention-drawing instrument of the lineup is surprisingly well-tempered, I refer of course to the violin when I say this, usually when you have a violin interposed among the other instruments in a rock band, it takes over and becomes the dominant aspect of the sound. This is definitely not the case here, Sivan's playing perfectly accents the rest of the song, and it's mixed in such a way that you wouldn't even notice it unless you were looking for it. Now, looking at this album outside of instrumentation and mixing, I find there's a real strength in lyricism and composition. The lyrics are pretty passionate and deal with complex issues outside of just crappy romance and breakups. My personal favorite off the album, the song Mama No, deals with parental neglect and abuse. Other songs, like Devastate, deal with the complexities of depression while drawing dreamlike images of surrealist landscapes. The imagery is really unique, and I admire that. As for composition, while it's not the most original, Dying Is Fun takes inspiration from classic song structure and builds onto it. One such technique, utilized in the song Isn't It Great? would be the quiet-loud-quiet technique of the Pixies and Nirvana. Classic technique, new spin on it. The differences are not negligible, and what's more, the songs manage to be both catchy and compositionally complex. Color me impressed. No album is without its faults, though, so I'll go ahead and give a word on that. There aren't many, and what few there are can be said of hundreds of thousands of other albums. First off, the band's originality and ability to stand out could use some more work. It's not a big deal, and I say it about every new band I review, but it needs to be said nonetheless. While Everyone is Dirty has managed to differentiate themselves to a notable degree, you won't be impacted immediately by how different they are from the thousands of other garage rock bands out there. It'll require you either listening to the songs a few times first or being a garage rock enthusiast. Both of which apply to me. Perhaps take that into consideration. Of course, like I said, that's not a huge deal. For a debut album, this is a fantastic level of originality. If the band continues as anyone else would to improve their sound from here on out, they'll be fine. Outside of that, though, the only real complaint I had was that the guitar solos were very lacking. I've been listening to this album very closely, and I still haven't heard one that sticks out to me yet. This is also not a huge deal. No band in any genre is required to do things a certain way. If they want to exclude guitar solos, that's fine with me. But if they want to improve them, it's going to take a bit of work. Seriously, it's like there's not a single solo on this album. To me, I can't feel it. On to my final opinion. On a scale of negative 2 to 7, I give this album a 5.5. 5. Above average, enjoyable, easy listening. Well, easy listening for people who really like rock. Maybe not easy listening for, say, Kenny G enthusiasts. Don't be deceived by the Cheap Stripper reminiscent album cover. This is some quality music. Once again, the album is Dying Is Fun by Everyone Is Dirty. Look for it wherever people find music these days, like Spotify, or Ask Jeeves. Ask Jeeves to go to Google and then search for the band, that's how you do it, right? That's all for today. I've been Nick, though I'm also known as Lens, Flesk, Meerkat, or just that dude who can't dress himself properly in public. I'm less fond of that last one. As always, you can send in a review request by tweeting at WKNC underscore EOT or by emailing publicaffairs at WKNC.org. Thanks again for listening in, and I'll speak to you all again next time.
7: Good afternoon. I am Peter Swazeni bringing you this week's community calendar, an Eye on the Triangle segment informing you of cool events occurring on campus or around the Raleigh-Durham area for the upcoming week. I would like to welcome back the NCSU students from spring break. I hope you guys all had a fun time. And now we're back at school. And there are plenty of events outside of class to entertain yourselves with. This upcoming week is chock full of seminars, exhibits, and talks. I will just go ahead and dive right into it. D.H. Hill Library will be hosting a Coffee and Viz After Hours event this evening. The Coffee and Viz talk is titled Art and Entomology, Insect Portraits Using Electron Microscopes. Here you can explore the intersection of art and science through the work of photographer Daniel Caraco assistant professor of fine art photography at East Carolina University and NC State entomologist. Carico's work examines insects through portraits inspired by the tradition of 17th century Dutch masters and created with composites of a number of exposures from scanning electron microscopy and stereoscopic microscopy. At this event, Caraco will discuss the motivation behind his work and the unique methods used to create these images. He will be accompanied by Dr. Matt Bartone from the Department of Entomology and Leah Schell from the Department of Applied Ecology to talk about the meaning of Caraco's work in the context of the practice and perception of entomology. Due to limited space, they are hosting two sessions of this program. Reservations can be requested at the 5.30 time or the 6.15 time. That's this evening again. And you can reserve your space at lib.ncsu.edu slash coffee dash and dash viz slash sign up again this coffee and viz after hours event will be held at the DHL library from 5 30 to 7 and is open to the public a new exhibit will be featured this evening in the craft center it is called exploring the micro world where science meets art dr ava johannes director of the Cellular and Molecular Imaging Facility at NC State University, will highlight advances and innovations in optical microscopy and the resources available at NC State. Insights on the technique used to create the images on display will be revealed. Student participants from various disciplines will also present the scientific backstories to their images. This premiere will be taking place at the Craft Center this evening from 6 to 7 30 and is open to the public. The Panoramic Dance Project Concert will be this Thursday at the Tally Student Center. Panoramic Dance Project is an arts NC State dance program student company dedicated to exploring a diverse range of dance styles, including modern jazz, hip hop, African, Bhangra, and Latin. This concert will include the work entitled Bye Naka Bye translate it, this means bite not one another. Choreographed by the world renowned founder and director of the African American Dance Ensemble, Dr. Chuck Davis, "Bye Not Goodbye is inspired by the post-initiation rites for young women in West Africa and is part of the residency supported by the OIED mini-grant. The concert also includes a piece choreographed by director Tara Mullins to music by the Nile Project in preparation for their campus residency in the spring of 2017. This piece explores ideas of wasting and preserving resources. This panoramic dance project concert will be taking place in the Tally Student Union, Stuart Theater, this Thursday from 8 to 9.30. And we're back at it again with the Coffee and Viz Seminars. This one is taking place at its normal time and location. This Friday's Coffee and Viz Seminar is titled Make Me Look and Get Me Excited About Science. Graphics, images and figures, visual representations of scientific data and concepts are critical components of science and engineering Engineering research. They communicate in ways that words cannot. They can clarify or strengthen an argument and spur interest into the research process. But it is important to remember that a visual representation of a scientific concept or data is a representation and not the thing itself. Some interpretation or translation is always involved. And just as in writing a journal article, one must carefully plan a figure or photograph to decide what to say and in what order to say it. The process requires clear thinking and and the ability to communicate. Communication, however, is a two-way enterprise. The viewer must first choose to look. This talk will include examples of Frank Wells' own attempts in creating various representations, some more successful than others. She will discuss the iterative process of getting from here to there in order to create representations that are more than good enough. Felice Frankel is a research scientist and photographer in the Center of Material Science and Engineering at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. She has published a book on visual strategies, a practical guide to graphics for scientists and engineers, and taught the MITx online course Making Science and Engineering Pictures a Practical Guide to Presenting Your Work. This Coffee and Viz event will be in the Hunt Library this Friday from 9.30 to 10.30 and is open to the public. AV Geeks is back and is hosting an event at Hunt Library is titled Science Needs Women. This will be occurring this Friday from 6 to 7. K. Sean Finch of AV Geeks will join Holly Menninger, Director of Public Science for the NC State College of Science, to screen and discuss vintage educational films about the intersection of gender and science. This AV Geeks event will be in the Hunt Library at the Teaching and Visualization Lab and will be occurring from 6 to 7 this Friday evening and is open to the public. There will be a Global Issues Seminar next Tuesday from 6 to 7.30. For the 16th year, NC State will participate in the Great Decisions program during the spring of 2016. Developed by Foreign Policy Association in 1954, Great Decisions bring millions of Americans together in communities across the country to explore current foreign policy issues. The program showcases what NC State is contributing in terms of teaching, research, extension, and engagement in each of these internationally pressing foreign policy issues. It is hosted by the School of Public and International Affairs in conjunction with the Global Issues Seminar sponsored by the Office of International Affairs. The location of this Global Issues Seminar is in Withers Hall, room 232A and again is Tuesday from 6 to 7.30. This event is open to the public. So there are plenty of events occurring on campus this upcoming week. I hope you've heard something that may have sparked an interest. This time of year marks the home stretch to the end of the semester. Hope you all enjoy it. I'm Peter Swazeni and has been the Community Calendar.
0: This is WKNC-FM Raleigh. I'm Mirtha Donastorg with Eye on the Triangle. So another event... That's happening today is WKNC's Fridays on the Lawn, so cap off this beautiful week with the coolest people on campus, us. You'll hear speed dating, brosy, oak city slums, and away message. Also, I heard there might be some visual effects involved, so come on to Witherspoon 126. Music goes from 6 to 8 p.m., and I'd like to thank Kevin Kronk, Nick Weaver, Jamie Halla, Saif Hassan, Cameron Dolachek, and Pat Peter, Peter Svazeni for contributing. As always, if you heard anything you liked, you hated, or anything that made you think, let us know on Twitter at WKNC underscore EOT. And be sure to check out our blog and podcast at WKNC-EOT.tumblr.com. You can catch another episode of Eye on the Triangle next Wednesday right here on WKNC at 4 p.m. But for Eye on the Triangle, I'm Mirtha Donastorg. Have a great Friday.